Welcome to Read All About It. I'm Yuri Vitacci. And I'm Marshall Moore. As usual, we'll be talking about two reasonably contemporary books, and then we'll go on to... The classic, which this week is going to be something we're discussing in the aggregate. Uh, the Sherlock Holmes body of work, the novels and the short stories by Arthur Conan Doyle. But first, we'll start off with talking about one novel each that we've enjoyed or think is worth uh, talking about. And my choice this week is Rogue Island by Bruce De Silva. It's the story of a reporter. Liam Mulligan works for a, a newspaper in Rhode Island in, in the US. And uh, uh, it's always interesting having a, a reporter as a main character because reporters are full of negative uh, uh, characteristics. They're pushy. They're obnoxious. They break the rules. You know, they go through no entry doors. Uh, they're, they're reputed to be insensitive. They stir up trouble. Uh, there's a lot of negative things about reporters, but there are also a lot of interesting positive things. You know, reporters are are uh, they they like to shine the light into the darkness. They 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 tend to be very moralistic. They're usually very liberal, and uh, uh, they like to uh, they they feel themselves on a on a passionate mission. They're also wordsmiths. They're witty. So you've got these two sides of the reporter. Uh, one, the guy who pushes through doors and sneaks around alleys, and the other guy, and the other guy in the same body who's uh, passionate and, uh, and moralistic. So um, uh, Liam Mulligan is a different type of, uh, of detective. He uh, he he investigates crimes and and uh, catches bad guys, but he does it for a scoop, not to arrest any villains. So uh, um, the the first book in the series, Rogue Island, uh, came out a few years ago, but uh, it was a great success. And now there's, uh, there's several. I think uh, book number five is just about to come out. Very well reviewed, but um, not yet uh, super famous. So uh, worth catching up with. Hmm, I think I'm sensing a theme this week. It seems like we have some kind of mystery detection reportage thing going on. And we didn't plan that, did we? It always seems to be the same. There's it a... seems to be happening. Anyway, in the in the in the first book in the series of uh, of uh, Bruce De Silva's uh, series, uh, Rogue Island, uh, Liam Mulligan, the reporter, um, investigates a fire, and uh, he notices it's not the first fire in this district. So he thinks the usual things. Okay, there's an arsonist, but he can't find any clues to there being an arson. Uh, the police say, no, it's not an arson. He looks for insurance scams. There are no insurance scams. He looks for um, whether one owner owned the different buildings that went up, and he finds they all have different owners. So there seem to be just no clues. And so he's stumped. But like all good reporters, he goes by his heart, and his heart says, there's some connection, there's got to be. So he pursues it. Unfortunately, he's held down by the fact that... Uh, you know, these these days the world is very corrupt and uh, the owner of the newspaper um, sends his son down and attaches him to, to Mulligan as an assistant. Because Mulligan is furious that he has to take this, this rich young kid around with him. And so he, he refuses to even mention the kid's name. He calls him Thanks Dad. So, so when he comes in, he says, hello, thanks, Dad, what are you doing here? Uh, and gives him some sort of horrible assignment to do while he gets on with the real work. So we've got this, uh, this conflict going on, actually, with uh, him hating his own sidekick. 
the result is a very offbeat uh, detective story and uh, one with a lot of humor um but still the the requisite darkness these days uh we don't do funny detective stories so much the agatha christie sort of uh, uh, elegant little murder at the dinner party thing you know uh, bad guys actually have to be quite bad in detective stories these days so uh, it's a it's a nice brew what would you say sets this one apart from so many other detective stories that are out there right now because it's you know it's such a hugely popular genre there's gazillions of them what how how does this one stand out that's a good question. I've read some really bad ones uh, lately, so I can't actually pinpoint the difference. Um, you know, in your standard detective story, there's a body and then there's a clue. And usually it's like a, a poem or a text. And then it becomes a game. The serial killer is killing people off and leaving a series of clues. It's so lame. And uh, we see this all the time. And then the, the, the bad guy turns out to be, you know, someone in the room in the corner. Um, and this isn't. This is unpredictable, genuinely unpredictable and uh, offbeat and original. It's also actually funny. I laughed out loud maybe two or three times and uh, I was I was uh, consuming it as an audio book. And, and in fact, uh, usually we bring along a paperback or a hardback or something. But uh, I've, I've I've listened to this book only as an audio book. And I, I do have an ebook version of it, but I don't I've never had a physical copy of it. This is the new generation. I've actually never listened to an audiobook in my life. I'm more of an ebook guy, although I'm kind of transitioning back to paper just for the sake of my vision. Yeah, paper's lovely, isn't it? You can fondle it and smell it. But uh, audiobooks and ebooks uh, are great too. This one, for example, it's set in Rhode Island, and so he's got a Rhode Island accent, which is bizarre to me. Um, he, he talks about the car pack instead of the car park. I think it's bizarre to most Americans, too. <laughs> right. And the last one I read was, was set in Ireland, when read by an Irish actor, and the whole, the whole feeling was like, you know, top of the morning to you. It's like, wow. And so, yes, uh, audiobooks do have that little uh, advantage, I think, of having a, a good actor sometimes uh, involved. Anyway, Liam Mulligan eventually uh, uh, works out that um, that there is a connection and he sets off on it. And thanks, Dad, uh, starts to realise, OK, he's in a very difficult position and starts to make his own career. So it's all it's all fascinating uh, and, and well worth a read. It's one of those detective stories that actually works because detective stories are so standardised ever since uh, Poe and... Conan Doyle. They've become little standard techniques with all the same elements in them. And to find a writer who's actually done something fresh with it, it's just really refreshing. Is it uh, refreshing in the sense that it's a new take on the detective story? Is it like a, a reinvention of the genre? Or is it more like he, this writer is working within the form and just doing it well? Uh, I'd say it's the second of those. He's working within the form, but giving it a fresh flavor. It's a bit like, you know, you live on chicken korma and then someone comes up with chicken tikka masala and you think, OK, this is fresh and fun. So uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's biting and spicy and a bit unpredictable, but it is, it is very much a standard detective story. Uh, as I mentioned, I had it as an audio book and we had it on, on, in the car on a long journey. And this is a hard-boiled audio book, which means everyone curses and swears like, like troopers, as the British say. That sounds excellent. Well, not if you've got a car full of kids. So, of course, they're kept 
um, they kept him these howls from the back saying, Daddy, not supposed to say that word. And me wondering, should I turn it off? Should I turn it off? What to do? But like in the end, I decided, OK, the kids have probably heard all this in the playground already. It's interesting you bring that up. Um, I've noticed and I've started doing a little research on this that the rules about swearing in English are changing. And so some of the words we think of as foul language, not that I'm going to recite them here. Well, I'd like to, but they're changing. And so the words that you know traditionally have been swear words aren't so strong anymore and they're being replaced by a new crop of them which are to do with, like, minority status or, you know, uh, bad language toward women or gay people or people of certain races. So which kind of swearing are we talking about here? Like old-school F-bombs, or are we talking about the stuff that really makes us uncomfortable today? Yeah, I think I think all of the above, all of the above. But as you say, uh, you know, talking about someone's race or sexuality is ob- objectionable in the same sort of way, isn't it? Um, it's it's funny though. Uh, the there is, there is ways to get around it. I don't know. We were watching Star Trek two the other day, and uh, it's full of moments where they should be cursing but aren't. You know, like Kirk screams out at one stage, "Shut your mouth!" He says, and you think, okay, he was definitely going to say something else there. But yeah, I think if we're watching anything on network TV, there's always these moments where people are in terrible peril, and how are they not swearing? That's right. And it almost <laughs> takes you out of the moment. But it sounds like this writer doesn't take you out of that moment at all. You're right there, and it's in your face. Yeah, that's right. So you've got to be a bit careful uh, with uh, giving this out as, say, a school book or, or something. Even though it's a, it's a, it's a detective story, you, you've got to be... Um, I, I think people are still a bit careful about these words. Uh, I certainly uh, shudder when I use a swear word when I'm writing. Uh, you, you, you're comfortable with it? Oh, I swear like a sailor. Um, I mean, in real life as well as in um, my writing. One of my books even got a bad review once because there was so much filthy language in it that the poor reviewer was just passing out from page to page and eventually gave me like a one-star rating on Goodreads or something. Well, that might have been me, actually, because I, <laughs> I come from a non-swearing family and we all, we all faint if we hear a, a swear word. We're discussing Rogue Island, the first in a series of detective books. This book is by Bruce De Silva. Okay, so my book this week is Now You're One of Us by Asa Nonami. Uh, This is a Japanese writer. I I like Japanese writers. I read them a lot. And this is a book that I've been wanting to read for a long time. And as I mentioned before, um, you know, there were just so many books that like I had to put on hold for years because I was working on my PhD. And then when I was done with it, I rejoiced because A, I was done and B, I could read all these books. Um, This is one where I've seen copies of it in the bookstores here for a long time, and it was always on my read that list. Um, You know, the bookstores here, before they all closed, had good Asian language English sections. So, And because I love living in this part of the world, I like reading the writers in translation. So Asa Nonami is... um, a Japanese mystery suspense author, and a few of her books have been published in translation, um, published by the American publisher Vertical, which has a really good translation program. Um, and now you're one of us. I mean, from the moment you look at it, this is another one of those books as objects where 
the cover art is fabulous. It's a bar of white soap with a single black pubic hair on it. So right then and there, as soon as you see the cover art, you're immediately going to want to know what's this book about because it looks kind of depraved, and it is. Uh, so Noriko uh, is this naive young woman um, in Japan, obviously, near Tokyo. And she's had a brief courtship with a man named Kazuhito from a very wealthy family. Um, and so there's this deep, dark mystery going on behind the family, the source of their wealth, who they are, and why something about them just seems off. So Noriko marries into the family. She goes to live with Kazuhito. Um, the family name is Shito. Uh, and they're very rich, and they live in this big, dark, mysterious old house. And you can recognize that from a lot of English literature. It's very gothic in the Western sense, but with a Japanese spin on it. Um, and, yeah, immediately it all gets weird because uh, on a property next door, it burns down in a murder-suicide. and But we can't talk about who did it. And there's this really convenient explanation given to her. Oh, the, the man in the family was crazy, murder-suicide, money problems, whatever. Um, and she finds the longer she's there, she keeps having these strange physical feelings as if she's being drugged and she is and um i can say without spoiling the plot too much part of the reason this family has so much money is that they've actually been cultivating like medicinal and psychotropic plants like datura and i forget what else hellebore and things like that so this family makes a lot of money growing medicinal plants psychotropics and poisons wow it uh, doesn't look like a standard suspense mystery story. Uh, and how is it different from the standard? Well, it's different in the sense that Noriko is investigating from within the context of this marriage. Um, so it's not a detective story in the sense of the one you've just talked about, where there is an investigative reporter. Um, but it's more like this woman who is married into a really bad situation. And on the one hand, she knows it. But on the other hand, she's incredibly naive, and she keeps telling herself, oh, it's all right, he loves me so much, I love him so much, they're so rich, this is a good situation for me, I just need to try harder. And so the tension continues to build, because as you read this story, you know, you continue to see that she really is in some kind of danger, and there really is something nasty going on, and just when you think you know what it is, you don't. And... The problem is, and I think a lot of the frustration I had with the story is simply that she's so naive. And it's the kind of thing where you're reading it and you just want to reach through the pages and kind of shake some sense into her. Like, come on, do you have any idea what these people are putting in your tea? There's all sorts of rules in detective stories, aren't there, about uh, how much characters can know and uh, how they get their clues and sort of pacing things. Uh, so it sounds to me like uh, there's, a, there's a fairly slow pace to it. Surprisingly not. I mean, it, you have to do a little investment toward the beginning of the story. It, it, it doesn't immediately take off. Um, but then once you're in uh, definitely a third of the way in, then it, it picks up and 
keeps going. Um, the interesting thing, though, is that one thing I liked about the book, I've seen the issue of uh, not so much drugs, but like psychotropic plants used as a plot device in a couple of other novels. And I've seen it handled very badly. And I actually think in this case, um, Nonami did a lot of research, and it seems like she actually knows what she's talking about, which sometimes I find that when writers not that I would ever do this, I'm sure you haven't either, um, use drugs or hallucinogens or whatever mm -hmm. in a story. It's like a plot device to make things too easy, um, to like make it too easy to like give them hallucinations which reveal bits of the plot or whatever, and that doesn't happen in this case, actually. She's a lot more careful with it than that. It does sound like it's a, it's an original take on a, a mystery, uh, suspense type story. Um, is uh, is is the heroine uh, someone who's going to be a, a, a detective character, an investigative character? No, no. I again, we're we're, we're heading into spoiler territory here. I don't want to to say what happens, um, but at the same time, what. The, the way that the story ends up is very consistent with her personality of, of naivete and convincing herself that she needs to try harder or just allowing herself to be convinced, I guess you could say. It does sound a bit frustrating if uh, if you're going to root for the main character and she's struggling to, to, to make it. it. It It is. And I think that's part of the reason it's like, would I give this book an absolute jump up and down? Yay, you must read this recommendation. Not really. I think it's more successful because it's interesting. Um, like for me, I always like reading Japanese novels because I think Japan is interesting and it, you know, you get this little window into the society that you might not otherwise have. Um, but yeah, this is a frustrating character, even if the book itself was pretty well written. I agree with you about Japan. Japan is such a great setting that, uh, I mean, last week we talked about David Mitchell. I mean, Japan is just such a great, interesting culture that just the setting alone is often uh, makes a book worth reading. Right. And one of the, the things that's unique to Japan in this is that it really plays a lot on like family lineage and family registries and some of that cultural stuff that doesn't really translate outside of Japan. So for me, as a white American guy reading it, yes, I know a bit about the country, but it's so different from where I grew up in North Carolina that I don't have the same really visceral reaction that a Japanese reader might. And perhaps uh, perhaps that's true also for, for the wider parts of Asia or East Asia, uh, Chinese readers, uh, maybe even South Asian readers, the sort of family tightness, clan, honor sort of thing that uh, that binds Asian families together. It sounds like it's captured well in this book. I think it is. Ultimately, that's really what it's about. And I think it's almost as much of a social critique as it is a mystery. It's It's sort of in the general approach of a mystery but ultimately i think she's trying to say something about japanese families mm. so my book this week is now you're one of us by asa nonami it's an unusual title isn't it what's, what's the implication of the title uh taking us back into spoiler territories i'm seeing a, a bit of a trend here um yeah the title now you're one of us it's superficially it's about her joining the family and the idea of marriage into this this sort of dignified, well-off Japanese clan. But there's a second layer to it that has a lot to do with the resolution of the book.
And our classic for this week is Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes, the the, the, the set, the series, the character. Uh, Sherlock Holmes first appeared in a short story in uh, 1887, uh, written by a, a young doctor. I think he was about 27 or 28, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. When he wrote it, he was working in uh, in uh, on the south coast of England, I think Portsmouth, when he wrote this story and sent it off to the short story magazines, and it was rejected. It was rejected multiple times, and eventually someone uh, agreed to publish it. It was a long short story, uh, A Study in Scarlet, and after it appeared in a in a periodical, it was published as a book. But it took a while to take off, didn't it? It did. I, I know his he's one of those kind of I don't want to say rags to riches stories because I think it all played out very differently back in the late eighteen hundreds. But I I did read about that you know because like I do the research after I read the books when I enjoy them because I want to know more about the writers. I think he wrote the whole thing in three weeks. Really. I don't know. I mean, unless he's doing a 7% solution like his character, I don't know how he managed to bang all that out in three weeks. And yet it became, I mean, so unimaginably successful. I mean, it's arguably, I think it's the most famous character in in modern fiction. Certainly um, uh, the number of movies, books, interpretations, plays, games even that have been inspired by Sherlock Holmes and John Watson. It really did establish a, a whole new genre. You know, there's detective fiction and then there's there's Sherlock Holmes and John Watson. Right. I was thinking about that uh, as I was preparing for this because you know, can we actually think of a character as popular as Holmes and Watson well, collectively? And I, I mean, the first thing I was thinking of was Harry Potter. I think he's become that. But before that, I, I really can't think of another character that's had the same impact. I mean, at least in terms of fiction. I think there's a deep psychological reason for this, uh, and that's the um, you know there's always a battle between the rationality and the instinct, you know, the the heart and the head, and so you've got uh, Sherlock Holmes, which is very he's very dependent on the head, and he's always making this speech, you know, we must be rational. Uh, it's all about the facts. We must be cold and unemotional, Watson. He says, and yet he's always wrong. Uh, he he actually does have a heart, and often it's John Watson who's the emotional one. Um, you just need that little bit of extra uh, something on top of rationality, don't you? I think so, and I, I think that's one of the things that Conan Doyle did right, just instinctively, where he kind of intuited that, and a lot of the reason that the series has been such an enduring success is about exactly that, because the whole thing is this sort of examination of the rational versus the emotional. Um, another thing I think that he did really well was simply the framing style of the stories, where he had Holmes and Watson and, you know, Holmes was the consulting detective, and then um, Watson was writing everything down. And so the stories are all presented as Watson wrote them about his experiences, either directly or hearing them from Holmes. It's such a great storytelling technique. It is, isn't it? And uh, uh, the the way that he's a superhero at first, uh, you know, the first uh, story is called A Study in Scarlet, and it's, um, it's full of uh, his trademark um, uh, deducting of amazing facts from, from very... From from nothing, so it seems. But as the stories continue, uh, we start to find uh, that he's actually full of flaws. He's a cocaine addict. Um, he has no friends. Uh, he has no wife. He has no. Uh, uh, and he, he's at the beginning. He's he's struggling with money as well. 
um, I think in the first book, he takes on John Watson as a flatmate because he can't afford the rent on 221 the Baker Street by himself. So he's got all these problems that slowly uh, rise to the fore. Uh, they get forgotten in some of the books, but... Uh Right. And it's it's interesting because reading it from a, a modern perspective, when you look at some of these shortcomings that Holmes has as a character, um, you want to think, OK, this is actually or maybe ask yourself, is this a little bit sloppy on Conan Doyle's part? Because if he's if Holmes is such a great um, deductive genius, then why can't he pay the rent? You see these these kind of flaws appear off and on throughout the stories where you know he why is he so unemotional when in fact he is why is he got these flaws sometimes it feels like they exist just for the sake of the story and conan doyle's maybe pushing the character around like a chess piece but then sometimes it also really works yes uh, i think in the early stories he is he's almost a superhero he can he can see a bit of tobacco ash and he can say oh this comes from a certain cigarello which only comes from brazil it's only sold in a certain certain shop in paris and he's this superhero character but uh, as the years go by, the book series continues. He becomes almost autistic. You know, he can't cope with his life. He, uh, uh, you know, he, he, his flat is untidy and full of drugs. Uh, he plays the violin, has no friends. He's, he's this strange, lonely character. And I think that's very much emphasised in the modern takes the the series uh, especially the benedict cumberbatch series where he's like almost almost a, a semi invalid because he's so crazy he's so brilliant that he's crazy well that's such a stereotype about intelligence that it's somehow a disability and it inhibits social prowess um i noticed that in the adaptations with benedict cumberbatch one problem that they have, and I think Conan Doyle managed to avoid this in the books and the short stories, is that um, the Benedict Cumberbatch version is almost too much of a superhero. Because if he can deduct everything, if he knows how everything's going to play out, if he's this master manipulator, which the screen character definitely is, there's almost no narrative tension because if he's in control all the time... Um, you know that nothing's going to happen to him. And I know that that's been an issue with uh, season four of the, the, the BBC version. Yeah, yet at the same time, it is one of the most successful TV shows of the era. So, But, uh, but you're right, I think. And uh, a lot of the focus is on John Watson and, his, and John Watson's wife. Uh, so he, the emotional, fragile character is as actually Watson rather than Holmes, I think, in that. So we've been talking about uh, Sherlock Holmes in the aggregate, the books, the short stories by uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. And if I had to choose one myself to recommend, I would suggest starting with A Study in Scarlet, simply because that's where the series begins and it's the introduction. How about you, Nuri? Uh, yeah, Study in Scarlet is a good one to start with. It was the first in the series. But there are lots of other good ones. Uh, the Instant of the, the Dog in the Nighttime, Hound of the Baskervilles. Uh, check that one out. So this week we've been talking about Rogue Island by Bruce De Silva. Then we talked about Now You're One of Us by Asa Nonami. And Sherlock Holmes, the series. Bye-bye.